Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining listeners in Nebraska and other places to Israel, exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Potash in Jerusalem, and I'm joined with my co-host and friend Liz Felstern, also in Jerusalem. And we have a guest with us today, Alan Gitlin from Palm Springs, who's in Israel with me on a special mission. Liz, it's great to do this in person. Yeah, that's so crazy. We've never had an introduction that says I'm Alan in Israel. It's fun. I'm excited to be here. And as you as you know, uh, I'm here just checking out some of the projects that the Palm Springs Jewish Federation is doing here in the desert. And uh, as I was sharing with Alan in the car the other day, it's desert to desert or midbar to midbar, kind of like the door to door concept. Um, but really, it's an opportunity for you and me to be together, to do this, and to see how life exists in Israel. You want to tell us a little bit about where we are in Jerusalem right now? Sure. I am. Yes. I. Although this may sound, you know, similar to other podcasts for listeners, for us, you know, as you said, it's totally different because we're here in the same place. And while that place for each of us is usually like a living room or a bedroom or wherever our spouses allowed us to be for that period of time, uh, today we're like out in the universe and we're in a very cute, I think, you can weigh in yourself, but coffee shop, which is called the Silo Cafe. We're in Jerusalem, fairly southern. Uh, in the city and it is named the silo cafe because the main building is an old some kind of silo i'm not an expert i don't know what it's stored it doesn't look like water i don't know what was kept here well, here's a, a sono station is it petrol that it's stored well that's oh maybe maybe it was a yeah maybe it was but oil another some kind of silo another landmark is that it's near the first station it is yes it is um so, yeah sort of just past what's considered the first station and it's a has a nice big outdoor area so luckily it's not too too hot today it, it was walking here because i got lost but uh, that's just uh, the stubbornness of of me and maps but liz um also as we walked into the area you pointed out the parking lot so several episodes ago you described the visit by president biden to jerusalem and all the work that the city had to do to accommodate the helicopters and the vehicles and you talked about the parking lot that's adjacent to where we right. are now and this is the very parking lot so and as you can see today all the light posts <laughs> have been reinstalled and the curbs have been replaced so it does not look like a giant helicopter landing pad but if you'll believe me a few weeks ago all those things in the middle of the parking lot were not there it was totally flat but now it's back to usual and we'll put pictures of this area up on the podcast links. Okay. So the other thing that we were talking about when we got here was the the certificate for Kashrut for this place. You called it Zohar. What? Yeah. So uh, Zohar is um, an organization. It's been around in Israel for a long time, over twenty years, and they do a lot of things, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit. But one of them is providing kosher supervision and certification for restaurants and cafes like this one. And you and I have talked before about how the rabbinate, the central rabbinic organization of Israel, has 
until quite recently basically had a monopoly on giving that kind of kosher supervision. And one of the things that happened under the last government were changes to those laws, which do create more competition and other avenues for businesses to get that certification. But actually, there has been for the past four years or so, this avenue through the organization of Tzohar for for businesses to get that certification. And I would say it's an interesting look at sort of how religion and business and society mix in Israel. Um, and it's a, it's a kosher certification that, you know, not everybody accepts, although even regular rabbinic supervision, not everybody nice. accepts, but it is becoming more and more, I would say, widely accepted. Um, and, you know, interesting to note with uh, with Sohar, I think, is that it was founded by rabbis from within the rabbinate. It's not like an example of, you know, much more liberal or different types of Judaism wanting to have a say. It was actually rabbis from the, the rabbinate itself who said that there should be a type of religious organization and supervision that is easier to work with. So an, alter, an alternate to the yeah. challenges of the rabbinate bureaucracy. Yeah, something that would be more welcoming, more user-friendly, not to compromise on halacha and Jewish law. That's not their goal at all. But to be flexible in the places where you can. Um, and so so has done that more recently with kosher certification, but even prior to that with things like performing weddings, right, in ways and in styles that the rabbinate would not allow in terms of perhaps what a bride can wear and what a bride can say and where a wedding can take place and when a wedding can take place and, you know, what music can or cannot be included. All of these things that if one wants to find religious flexibility without compromising the letter of the law, you can. That That's not the rabbinate's goal. But for an organization like Soho, that is their goal, right? To find ways for people that are interested in religious observance, but on their own terms, to have that option. That's a great explanation. I think being in Israel, this is my first time since COVID, and there are always, always new things to see. But one of the objectives we have by being here now is to really see the projects that the Jewish Federation of the Desert contributes to. And we've seen quite a few. I'm going to put Alan on the spot here. Do you have any insights or questions about what we've seen since we've been here? Or highlights for or you? Highlights what for you've you? seen? Well, we were in Ramad HaNegev, and uh, one of the touching visits we made was to the school that the mayor worked very hard to put together for um, children with emotional um, behavior issues. We got to talk to the staff yesterday, and they were phenomenal. And it hit home because when my daughter was very young, she was diagnosed as ADHD, and it was, let's give her this pill, this pill didn't work, let's give her another pill. And they... They said that's a last resort for them. They do yoga. They do um, one-on-one talking and, you know, and, and issues and books. And, so, and it was very touching. And the mayor uh, came out, and he was very proud of this, this um, school. And he said that his kids go to this school. And that, that's why he worked so hard to make sure that other kids had the same opportunity. That was very touching. It was, you know, an emotional recognition. I, I would agree with you. They also have 
animals for right. trust uh, opportunities. So animals to trust the students and the students to trust the animals. That's also, fantastic. Yeah. I mean, even as, as an Israeli, I would say, and as a, to a certain extent, right, a spoiled Jerusalemite, I'm more in the city, we think of ourselves, and it's true of having more resources sure. and more opportunities. That sounds like something that we don't have all that much of. That sounds very impressive. Well, I think in a city like Jerusalem, there's so much um, urbanization that you have to deal with, with mass transit and, and um, you know, certain areas you can travel safely and you can't, and, and the hierarchy of getting a kid in school you know, your child makes sure that they've got the right career, I mean, um, educational path. Um, it's much different. There, they have very limited resources. And uh, it was interesting talking to this mayor. Uh, I said, you know, I've been around politicians, you know, for the last part of my life. I was a, a labor leader, so I had that opportunity. And I said, you don't, you don't seem like the you know, your typical politician. He says, well, I'm not, because I was not a politician. When um, I worked for the previous mayor, he died. Everyone said, you've got the knowledge, you're the mayor. And he got elected. And he's, he's very aggressive. He has goals. He has a huge district that's from... Um, so about 22% of the country yeah. is the Ramat HaNegev area. Wow. All the way to the Egyptian, yeah. Yeah, wow. All the way to the Egyptian border. We were there yesterday. So, I mean, it's mind-boggling. And he says that he goes out once a month, two days, and he visits all of the districts in his, in his, um, I guess, what does he call his it? Region. Uh, his region. Yeah. And uh, I said, wow. And one of his aides was with us, too. And he says, yeah. He says he's got a car that goes down dirt roads, and he visits all the remote sites, and he makes sure people are getting their needs met. I was like, wow, that's, that's very, really unusual. Very dedicated, very dedicated and yeah. communicative to us. Also, he's very proud of his transparency as a mayor, that he puts the budget up on... On uh, the website, he puts his his daily calendar up on the website. Right, that was impressive. Yeah. That is impressive, and it seems uh, very, very forward-thinking. I mean, I can say even for the national government in Israel, their budget, while it has always been technically available online, only in the past couple years has it been made available in a way that's accessible to the public. So for a, you know, a smaller government entity to already have that foresight and that even yeah. digital technological ability is very impressive. Yeah. It was really fun visiting... The area I'd not been to south for a long time, and again I'm going to go back to the phrase "the desert to the desert" because the the sand looks the same as it does in uh, outside of Palm Springs. And so he even made a comment that on the the map they have um, Palm Springs in Hebrew as part of their vision for this area. So called um, it uh, Tamar. It wasn't Mayan. Tamar, what would Palm Springs be in Hebrew be? Uh, a spring usually is, is a it? Mayan. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how else it's Neviot. I don't know yeah. how else you would whatever, say. Whatever. So he's got a vision of it to have the the ability to view the two areas kind of succinctly. Um, I will say, driving, we saw the most amazing um, solar. Uh, Experiment? How would you call it? No, it, it's not an experiment. It's actually in play. Um, it is a three-way 
solar supported energy because it's thermal thermal solar solar and, and photovoltaic pho, pho, yeah and it, it lights up it looks like god's flashlight because it the particles in the atmosphere see, catch some of the rays from the rotating mirrors and it's really interesting to all of a sudden come upon it's like look at how bright that light is oh and I, I, miles actually actually power uh, power is it a power plant? Is yeah, it producing power, yeah, power yeah, that's yeah, used producing, then? Yeah. I'll put a I'll put a, a picture as well as a link to the website. And I think, if I remember correctly, the statistic we looked at, 50,000 tracking mirrors. Yeah. So as wow. the sun moves, it's focused. They give it a coordinate, and all these 50,000 move in unison as the sun moves to keep it focused up there. Wow. It was um, very impressive. Was, I've never seen anything like it, but they said they just built one in Saudi Arabia that's similar to it. Yeah. 260 meters high, and the one in Saudi Arabia was 262 meters high. Yeah. Just had to. I'm pretty sure it was. Level, I'm pretty sure it was Saudi Arabia. I could be wrong. We'll have to check that. No, I, I read it. Oh, you read it. Okay. So I wanted to um, mention something. So one of the things that Alan has noticed, he hasn't been to Israel in 25 years. The uh, how people how people express their religiosity. Their identification through their clothing. So there are different styles of kippot, there are different styles of headscarves, there are different styles of tzitzit, length of tzitzit, color of tzitzit. Any thoughts on how one views their, uh, or, or displays their Jewish uh, affiliation? Yeah, I would say that even if for someone who has been here much more recently than that, it's always changing. It's very hard to keep up to date on all the latest in terms of uh, religious head coverings. There are many, many different varieties. I, I think they're fascinating to look at. And, um, you know, just they range in size and in color. And um, once in a while, I'll even see a head covering that it's not quite clear whether the woman is wearing it because she's a religious Jew or she's a religious Muslim. Some, the, usually wow. there are separate types of tying. It's usually quite clear. But once in a while, you'll you see someone that I mean, has you... tied it in a certain way that it just sort of skirts the edge of both. And it's not quite clear, which is really interesting, right? Because clearly that woman has chosen to tie it in such a way that it's not clear. Wow. Very interesting. I have not picked up on that one. Yeah, yeah, you don't see it a lot, but once in a while. Um, and um, I've, I find that they get bigger. I think that <laughs> some that I've seen are like, I don't know how they walk. They get bigger and bigger. I don't remember years ago seeing, you know, it looks like a whole carpet is like tied up there. I don't know. <laughs> it's but then a very strong neck because muscle. They're pregnant too. Maybe that's true. It helps balance it. Well, balance them up. Yes. The, the two do often go together. Um, <laughs> well, but uh, but. yeah. And for so looking at head coverings is definitely a good uh, tourist and local activity, but uh, in on the subject of, you know, dress being used as a way to express you know, religion and religious affiliation. Another neat thing to look at if we ever graduate from looking at head coverings is, um, you know, foot coverings also differ. Oh, I've not looked at the feet um, yet. Not so much the shoes themselves, but in terms of 
whether a person will or will not have their toes visible. So there's also all these different gradients amongst religious women. You know, will they not wear sandals at all? Will they wear sandals but only with stockings? Or will they not wear sandals at all? Um, and so that's a whole other thing that I sometimes like to, to look at just to understand the different nuances and the different categories. And of course, you know, as we said, we're, we're recording this live sitting in a cafe, so we can't help but notice, you know, the different stripes and flavors as people pass by. And the, the head coverings, you know, also go with the rest of the dress. So some of the women in head coverings are wearing dresses. A woman just went by wearing a fairly large head covering, but pants. Um, so yeah. here in Jerusalem, we have all the flavors. All of them. Is it regional? So if you're in the north or the south or in the center of the country, is there a difference in what one wears? I don't know if it's super regional. I mean, there are definitely pockets. Like, let's say if we were to go up to Tzfat, right, we'd see certain styles that are common to that sort of culture, right? A very spiritual, they have a different religious tradition. Um, I bet there we would see some head covering styles a little bit different than maybe we would see in the rest of the country. Um, well, it's cultural like everything else, yeah, right? If you yeah. go to one college, you tend to see the women there sporting one style because that's what's in and religiously acceptable in their circles. And if you go to another school or another neighborhood, you'll see something different. What do you, what do you think dictates it? Does, is, the, I mean, is it by the rabbi of the congregation you're in? Is it... Is it sect dictated? I mean, like we were at the wall the other day and there was a parade of Hasidic, and I don't know if they're Jews, I would just say, you know, uh, religious Hasidic uh, scholars, I would guess, there at the wall, very intense. And it was like a fashion show. This one guy walked by, looked like he was fertilizing his hat, and he got to the edge of the the uh, area where we're at and he put it back in his his hat box then another one went the other direction and he ended up at the end of the the walkway put his hat back it was like a fashion show it was uh, it was mind-blowing very interesting it it was the the strimal that was usually worn on shabbat but also worn when you go to the kotel or to the synagogue yeah So, I mean, the question of, you know, who's determining it and, you know, how much are rabbis dictating or sect is a great question. In the ultra-Orthodox communities, there are definitely differences from sect to sect, right? Um, There are certain uh, groups where, you know, without question, a woman is going to be wearing a hat that completely covers every strand of her hair and that's it now maybe they come in different colors maybe they come in different shapes but that is a standard in their community in other places a wig is the norm so you may not even know that the woman you're looking at is wearing a head covering we have very fancy wigs available here in israel obviously there's a bigger market for them so you can get all different kinds i think the really good ones are supposed to come from india and their human hair of course wow Uh, that's the really good ones um and and then there are other groups where it's okay to have a little hair out or a little more hair out. That's really, I guess, the point at which a rabbi might have something to say about it, right? You the mean rabbi, if they saw them on the street that I don't like what how you're dressed? 
or... No, not to someone else, but let's say for their congregation, they would oh. say the norm, right? The rabbi has said whether he understands Jewish tradition to say that none of a married woman's hair should be seen by someone other than her husband or um, a, a tefach, which is a specific religious measurement. It's about the width of your hand, whether that much hair is okay, but longer is not okay. Um, so there are different religious rulings and different opinions. And so a, a rabbi would get would have an opinion on that. I don't know too many rabbis that care, you know, whether it's light blue or light pink or has rhinestones or feathers or not. They're more concerned about whether, in fact, it meets the religious requirements for how much of a married woman's hair is okay to be seen by people that are not her husband. Well, that's a, a great way to close out our podcast, talking about how much hair somebody can have out. I still have a little bit of my hair. Alan, not so much, but you got some left there. It's missing. I couldn't even put my yarmulke on the other day. It kept sliding off. Yeah, well, you have to use bubble gum to... I, yeah. Medical tape. Miracle tape. Oh, medical tape. Oh, medical double, tape. Double stick. Uh, metal, oh, there you that's go. That's the best, because then it's, you know, easy on the skin. You just buy the pharmacy a roll of medical that's tape. A, wow, that's a new I'll thing. I'll teach you all the Jewish <laughs> tricks, guys. Nice. Stick with me. So thank you all for listening to Israel Rebound, our podcast. Today was a special day with... Liz and myself in Jerusalem with our guest Alan Gitlin. So uh, we'll put some interesting stuff up on the podcast uh, link as well. A picture of the power station, a picture of where we are, and maybe some examples of head coverings. Thank you all for listening. Thanks all.